Well, good morning, Crestwick Baptist Church. It is good to be back with you, and I encourage you to turn with me again to Paul's epistle to the Galatians. Uh, last Sunday, if you were here, or perhaps watching from home, you will recall that we went to chapter 1, and the title for the sermon was Delivered. And we consider together verses 3 through 5, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of God the, the, and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Delivered. And now today we're going to flip over to chapter 2, and the title for this sermon is Crucified. And our text is verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Crucified. Uh, my wife Allison and I, perhaps, perhaps I've shared this before, I can't recall, um, we were missionaries in Portugal back in the 90s when we were teenagers. Back in the 90s, we were missionaries uh, in the north of Portugal, lived near the city of uh, Porto, and I think it was the summer of 1998, I had an invitation to speak at a conference in Ireland, and so before we, we departed Portugal, I... I turned off the circuit breaker, the electricity, to our apartment or second, on the second floor. And I turned off the, the main water line. And we made preparations, and off we went. And we were gone for maybe two weeks. I think it was mid-July. And at the end of two weeks, we returned uh, home. And we approached the front door of our apartment. And I took the key from my pocket. And I turned the lock and opened the door, just cracked it, barely a few inches, and I nearly fell to my knees as this stench uh, emitted from our apartment. I had turned off the electricity. I had forgotten to empty the fridge in the freezer. Sausages, chicken, you get where I'm going with this. Uh, the stench was overwhelming, and uh, there is no other word for it. It was uh, completely nauseating. Where am I going with this? I'm thinking of Romans chapter 3, because Paul says something in Romans chapter 3 that is actually quite offensive. Uh, he declares there that um, all have turned aside turned aside from God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. The word actually means useless. The term in the original actually refers to rotten food. That which stinks, that which you can no longer consume, that which is of no use, no worth, all that remains to be done is to throw it out. I told you, Paul is very offensive there in Romans chapter 3. All have turned aside. Together we have become worthless. 
He tells us right there in that same text, there is none who does good. No, not one. He, he adds injury by declaring there is none righteous. No, not one. And so there in the third chapter of Romans, he, he paints he paints a very dark portrait of the human predicament. And he doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't offer any niceties. He makes it very clear that we do not need Christian pop psychology. We most certainly do not need uh, some sort of self-help recipe. We do not stand in need of chicken soup for the soul. We stand in need of a Savior because our condition before God is absolutely deplorable. It begs the question, it's a question that is, it's asked on numerous occasions in Scripture, and it is this, how can I be righteous in the presence of God? How can I, someone who is a sinner, how can I, someone who has never done, as far as God is concerned, in God's estimation of me, someone who has never done anything good in my life, something who, someone who is completely unrighteous, and someone who in the estimation of God has turned aside from Him and has become worthless, how can I be right? How can I be righteous? How can I be accepted by God? I dare say that is the most important question in the world. I dare say that is the question of questions. Given who I am and given the extent of my sin, uh, given the extent of my depravity, how can I be considered right, righteous, in the sight of God? The answer hangs on five statements. Okay, are you ready for these? Um, I'm after someone this morning. Five phrases, and I, I pray by the Spirit of God, this is clear, that by the Spirit's help, this resonates, that it, it sinks home, and that the, the eyes of our hearts are truly enlightened to perceive the glory of the gospel in Christ Jesus. And so the answer to the question rests on these five statements. The first is this. We must obey the law in order to be righteous in God's sight. That's a given. We must obey the law in order to be righteous in God's sight. The law as it's found, the moral law in the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any gods, you know, the likenesses, images for yourself. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. You shall honor your mother and your father, right? You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. There it is, the Decalogue, what we call the moral law. There's also the natural law, that law which God has implanted in the heart of every man, man and woman. Every person who's ever been born, all places, all times, knows the Ten Commandments inherently. Romans 1 tells us that. 
that the law is written on man's heart. Man knows that intuitively everyone, every place at all times knows it's wrong to steal. We know it's wrong to commit adultery. We know it's wrong to covet. And yet we have broken this law, but here is the requirement. If we are to be righteous in the sight of God, we must keep this law perfectly. Everyone clear on that? Here's the second phrase. We can't obey God's law. The flesh, Paul tells us in Romans 8, is at verse 17. The flesh, who we are by nature, we are at enmity with God. And the flesh cannot please God. It is an impossibility. We must obey the law in order to be righteous in God's sight, to be accepted by Him, to be received by Him. But the second point, we can't obey the law. It's an impossibility. You think of the very first commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. We have all sorts of gods. You think of the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. I guarantee it, each of us has broken that commandment already this morning. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Here is the great human predicament. We have broken God's law, and we can't obey God's law. Now, here's the third point. We must obey the law in the person of of a mediator. Who's a mediator? It's the go-between. Who am I referring to? Jesus Christ. One person, fully God, fully man. He mediates between God and us. He is the mediator. Guess what? He obeyed the law perfectly. I have come to fulfill all righteousness. And he loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he loved his neighbor as himself. And he never committed a transgression. He most certainly did not fall short of the glory of God. And there was no iniquity in him. Absolute perfection. And the Lord Jesus fulfilled and obeyed the law. Not only obeyed the law but then took the curse that we had incurred for breaking God's law, took that curse upon himself at Calvary's cross and bore its penalty in full. The third point is this. We must keep the law in the person of a mediator. We need someone else to do what we are incapable of doing. Here's the fourth point. We become one with the mediator. How? Through faith. He takes hold of us by the Holy Spirit. We take hold of him through faith. These are the marriage knots that bind us together in an indissoluble union. And because I am knit together with Christ, God now sees me in the Lord Jesus. It brings me to the fifth point. Because I am one with the mediator through faith, God now treats me as if the mediator's righteousness were mine. Oh, amen. No one's saying it. I'm going to say it. Amen. 
God now treats me because I am one with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He now treats me as if Christ's righteousness were mine. He reckons it to be mine. Luther said, this is the great exchange. Oh, this is the great exchange. When we become one with Christ, he gets what's ours. Our sin reckoned to him upon Calvary's cross. And the penalty for our sin, there he is, bearing it in full. And when we become one with him, we get what's his. And what is it? His perfect righteousness whereby I now know with absolute certainty the answer to that question, how can I, a sinner, be righteous in the sight of God? I know the answer to that question is one word, one word alone, it is Jesus. That I can stand righteous in the sight of God. I can stand fully welcomed, fully received by God on the basis of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Staying with Martin Luther just for a moment, famous Protestant reformer, as he preached before his congregation in Wittenberg, early 1500s, and he was trying to hammer this truth into their minds. He said to them, look, you know, as you think on your farms, it's a rural community, think of your farms, each of you, and you think of the dung hills dotting your farms. It's July. I know the practice, said Luther to them. You know, you collect the refuse. It's not a very pleasant thought, but stick with me. You collect the refuse from your farm animals, and you collect these dung hills all over your fields, and you use it as a fertilizer, right? A way of fertilizing the land. You plant your crops. You harvest your crops. And here we are in July, and the landscape is dotted with these dung hills. And they're ugly, unsightly. And awfully smelly. But come November, come December, you're going to go to bed on one cold night and you're going to wake up at the crack of dawn and you're going to walk out of the front door of your little cottage and the entire landscape will be covered with what? A white, pure, pristine, beautiful blanket of snow. And all will what? Be hidden from view as it is covered, these dung hills, covered in this pure, pristine blanket of snow. And Luther's point to his congregation was this. You're the dung hills. You're the dung hills. And this is the wonder of the doctrine of justification. Be very careful here. The doctrine of justification doesn't change us because the doctrine of justification has nothing to do with us. The doctrine of justification is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. The doctrine of justification is to receive Jesus Christ through faith, whereby we are robed. We are enclosed, if you like. We are covered, who we are, all covered, robed in the perfect righteousness of Christ, whereby we can celebrate in the language of Romans 5.1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Or in the language of Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are what? 
in, in. It's a beautiful little preposition. In Christ Jesus. Because we stand in the person of our mediator, one with him. And God looks upon us, sees him. And God receives us in him. He looks favorably upon us in him. He loves us in him. He welcomes us in him. He forgives us in him. And he bestows his righteousness upon us. How can I, a sinner, be righteous in the sight of God? Oh, the soul sufficiency of Jesus Christ and the wonderful blessing of the doctrine of justification. Now, did you get all that? It's all a preamble to our text. I haven't forgotten about Galatians 2, verse 20. It's all a preamble. Because in Galatians 2, verse 20, Paul takes a slight shift. And here he's teaching us, look, there's a second blessing to union with Christ. Yes, the first blessing is justification. Yes, it has to do with the grounds of our salvation, the sole grounds of our salvation, Christ alone, the sole means by which we are justified, faith alone. And this is the only reason God accepts, accepts us, the only reason God welcomes us. It is in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you see, when we become one with Christ, there is a second blessing, and that blessing is called what? Sanctification. Whereby God does what? He does change us. Because yes, we've been brought into union with the Lord Jesus. Yes, we're now clothed with his righteousness. But equally true, because we're one with Christ, and we, we, we celebrate it as our brother read Romans chapter 6, what the entire text is about, because we are one with Christ, we're now one with him in his what? His death, his burial, and his resurrection. And Paul says what in our text? That the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And so here we are now, prime for Galatians 2.20, and this tremendous declaration of the Paul, that Paul makes concerning the impact the gospel brings to bear upon our lives. Let me read it again for you in its entirety. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Look at the verse. There are five parts to it, five little sections that as we try to get our minds around it, that if we just break it into these five little parts and give a brief explanatory word and then put it all back together, we'll really have the sense of the text. And so the first part is this, exactly what Paul opens with, I have been crucified with Christ. That sounds like gibberish. I was just born 53 years ago. What do you mean, I have been crucified with Christ? It's an historical event that happened 2,000 years ago. What does Paul mean? I have been. It's a reality, an objective reality. I have been crucified with Christ. This makes no sense unless we understand the doctrine of union with Christ. That because Christ has taken hold of me by the Holy Spirit, I have taken hold of him through faith. We are now in God's reckoning one. And what God considered, what, what is Christ's, God now reckons to be mine. Christ's righteousness. Not just his righteousness, 
But because I am now one with Christ, God reckons what? Christ's death, burial, and resurrection to be mine. That as far as God is concerned, I was not physically present, but I am now one with the Lord Jesus Christ. So as far as God is concerned, when Christ died upon Calvary's cross, I was crucified. It doesn't mean I literally physically die. That's an absolute impossibility. But what is Paul affirming? He is affirming that by virtue of my union with the Lord Jesus, his legal death is mine. In God's reckoning, if you are a believer, you died legally at Calvary's cross with the Lord Jesus Christ in his person by God's reckoning. It is as though I have been crucified in my own person. Now look at the second part of the verse. It is no longer I who live. Well, again, it seems like gibberish, doesn't it? What do you mean it's no longer I who live? Well, who's doing the living then? Here I am, standing right in front of you. I'm alive. What does this mean? It is no longer I who live. Well, Paul isn't saying that I've lost my personality, that somehow I'm no longer who I was. His point is this. Look, because in God's reckoning you have died legally with the Lord Jesus Christ, it means that you now have a new identity. As far as God is concerned, you are no longer who you were in Adam. That man died. He was died upon Calvary's cross and laid in the grave. And you now have a new identity, an identity shaped by virtue of your union with the Lord Jesus Christ, which brings us to the third part of the verse. But Christ, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Again, because I am one with Christ in God's reckoning. The life Christ lives is now the life I live, whereby my complete identity is determined by the Lord Jesus Christ. And I live for one purpose, one purpose alone. What is it? To live in submission to the will of the Lord Jesus Christ. It brings us to the fourth point. And the life I now live, here I am, the life I now live in the flesh, because guess what? The dunghill's still here still a sinner. I still battle with the flesh every day. And I know you do too. And I know it's two steps forward, one step back. And I know every spiritual blessing is mine in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And I know all the promises that belong to me in the eternal state and that eternal reality that is coming. But right now I live with this terrible tension that I'm a justified sinner, that I'm a sinning saint, and I am called to live for Christ and glorify Christ in right now in this present life. How do I do that? I do that in the flesh as I live by faith in the Son of God, meaning I submit to Christ. I submit to His Spirit who dwells in me. And I submit as I turn to His Word. He reveals His will for me. The Spirit illumines the Word, helps me to understand that will. I apply it to myself, thereby living by faith in the Son of God. 
And where does the impetus and the motivation come from to do that? The last phrase in our verse, who loved me and gave himself up for me. The object of my faith as I fix my gaze upon the Lord Jesus Christ is twofold according to what I just read. The first is Christ's love. He loved me. The second is what? The expression of that love, his suffering. He gave himself for me. And as I live in the light of the gospel, as I live in the light of Calvary's cross, and as I preach the gospel, you think back to last week in the context of chapter 1, right, where Paul celebrates the fact that Christ delivered us, right, by giving himself for our sins, that as I remind myself of that daily, and I, I remember what it means to be delivered and redeemed from this present age. And, and I remember and celebrate what it means to now be counted a child of God and a member of God's family. As I live in the light of the gospel each and every day, I have this overwhelming revelation of God's love for me. And that love compels me to live in the flesh by faith in the Son of God. Why? Because it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Why? Working backwards. Because as far as God is concerned, I have been crucified with Christ. There's our text. We're going to take an extremely important doctrine from this text. It's going to come up on the screen behind me. I'm calling it the key to the Christian life. And there it is. The key to the Christian life. Is it this simple? Yeah, I'd like to suggest it, it really is pretty much this simple. The key to the Christian life, the key to living right now in a fallen world, the key to glorifying God right now, whatever our calling, vocation in life, the key to progressing in holiness and growing in sanctification and growing in Christ-likeness. There it is in that verse. We can sum it up as follows. The key to the Christian life is one, believing that Christ was crucified for me. Number two, believing that I have been crucified with Christ. Number three, seeing myself daily hanging on the cross. And number four, living accordingly, acting like it. The key to the Christian life, here it is in a little phrase. It's acting like a dead man walking because that's what we are. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. The key to the Christian life, believing that Christ was crucified for me, believing that I have been crucified with Christ, seeing myself hanging on the cross and living accordingly. What does this mean? What does this mean for my sin and struggle with temptation? What does this mean for envy, anger, bitterness? What does this mean for lust, impatience, greed? 
What does this mean for unguarded words and unfiltered thoughts? It means I must remind myself daily that Christ died for me, gave himself up for me. I must remind myself daily I have been crucified with Christ. I must see myself daily all that I was in Adam hanging upon the cross. And daily I must seek to act like it in a manner that is consistent with who I am, my identity in Jesus Christ. And so it means, I think it was a preacher I heard a long time ago, or I think it's actually in a book he wrote. He tells of this missionary somewhere halfway around the world. I think maybe it was Southern Africa. And this missionary, as he was uh, just sort of walking around his garden one evening, he noticed these plants growing, recognized them right away as poisonous. Two young boys in the home. Two young boys going through that phase where everything goes into the mouth, right? So he says, two young boys shoving everything in their mouths, poisonous weeds growing in the garden, not a good thing. Recipe for disaster. So what did he do? He tore up the weeds. Next morning, they were growing back. What did he do? He tore them up again. Next morning, what did he do? Tore them up again. Next morning, again, next, again, and again, and again, and again. Every morning, he would inspect the ground, his yard, his property, and any sign of those weeds, he would what? He would tear them up. That's how we deal with sin. That's the only way to deal with sin. It is by reminding ourselves who we are in Christ Jesus. It is by reminding ourselves that we are dead men walking. And it is by acting accordingly by mortifying sin in the very beginning. So I don't know. Maybe you struggle with anger. You now, now, you now know how to deal with it. You struggle with some sort of habitual sin? Here it is. We could sit down and have a counseling session. All I would do is repeat what I'm saying right now. You struggle with same-sex attraction? Here's the answer. You struggle with some sort of other sexual immorality? Here's the answer. Any sin you're wrestling with, any conceivable sin, here is the answer. I believe that Christ was crucified for me. I believe that I have been crucified with Christ. I see myself hanging on the cross, and I live accordingly. Or as the Lord Jesus Christ himself put it, you take up your cross, you deny yourself, and you follow me. Here's a second implication. What does this mean for my will? This key to the Christian life. Well, it means I exchange my will for his will. This life isn't about what I want. Surprise, surprise. This life isn't about my dreams and ambitions and aspirations. This life is about the Lord Jesus. This life is about what He wants. This impacts the way I use my money, my time, my gifts, my talents, my abilities. This impacts and influences my entire decision-making process because I believe Christ was crucified for me. I believe I have been crucified with Christ. I get it. I see that all I am, my sinful self in Adam, I see it there hanging upon the cross. And I now live accordingly, meaning that the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And so the number one question in my life is what? Or the number one declaration in my life is what? Not my will, but thine be 
done. What does this mean for my pride? You think of what Paul says, what he writes to the Philippians. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We are one with the Lord Jesus. Our Lord Jesus who emptied himself, who gave himself, who made himself nothing. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. What does that mean for my pride? What does that mean when I don't get my own way? What does that mean when I'm craving human praise? All of that dies before the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, what does this mean for my attitude to the world? This world in which we live, a system of perspectives, expectations, convictions, and actions which make man the focus of everything. Well, we now have a completely new view of life and reality, don't we? Our answers to these questions, radically different from the answers the world offers. Who am I? Right now, Christian, who are you in the light of this text? Who am I? What am I doing? Where am I going? What do I want? What do I value? Oh, the world has a whole set of answers for that, doesn't it? The world's unholy trinity, power, prestige, and pleasure. There you have it. Oh, we now think radically differently. Why? Because we believe that Christ was crucified for us. We believe that we have been crucified with Christ. We see ourselves hanging on the cross. And we live accordingly. What does this mean for my plans, right, my decision-making? What does this mean for my relationships? There's a good one. How does this shape the marriage relationship? How does this resolve conflict in the context of the marriage? How does this impact our relationships in the context of a local church? We begin to exemplify Christ's likeness, don't we? We put away hypocrisy. We pursue sincerity. That word sincere, most interesting, it comes from the Latin sincera. Sincera, translated without wax. That's where the word sincere comes from. Why? Because in the days of Christ, way back in the times of the New Testament, merchants, less than honest, as they sold their earthenware, their vases and everything else at the market, perhaps it got cracked on the journey to market, they would melt wax, they would put the wax into the cracks, and then they would paint over it, and they would sell it as if there was nothing wrong with it. Well, more reputable or honest merchants, what would they do? They would hang a sign over their wares, sign Sarah, without wax, meaning what? What you see is... What you get, sincerity. Oh, and when we realize we are dead men walking, oh, sincerity becomes a hallmark of our relationships. In the context of the home, in the context of work, neighborhood, the church. Oh, what does this mean, this key to the Christian life? What does this mean for my opinions? I'm opinionated. 
I'm going to guess you are too. You know what my problem is? My problem is this. I know all of my opinions are right. And I'm guessing you feel exactly the same way. You get a church of 200 people who are opinionated and all their opinions are right. You throw these 200 people together, what's going to happen? You're going to have some disagreements. Brother, sister, maybe it's not about your opinions. Maybe church life has nothing to do with you getting your own way. Maybe church life is all about living a crucified life. Maybe it's all about seeing ourselves hanging upon the cross and realizing we have been crucified with Christ. It is now Christ who lives in me, and I am to think of others more highly than myself. And I'm to give people the benefit of the doubt. And, and I'm going to recognize that love covers a multitude of sins. And, you know, I'm going to realize that your opinion on masks, as compared to the gospel, is downright trivial. And I'm not going to make a mountain out of secondary, tertiary issues. I'm going to stay focused on things that are of eternal consequence. I'm going to stay focused on the hills that really are worth dying for and not get caught up in opinions simply because I haven't mortified my pride in the shadow of Calvary's cross. Oh, I have been crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Oh, just a few more, then we'll wrap up. What does this mean when I'm offended? I'm sure if I stuck around this place long enough, I would offend you. And uh, some of you would offend me. You look at me the wrong way in the foyer or something, I don't know. Or we say something because we haven't had our second coffee yet and we're a little, I don't know, out of, bone out of joint. But how, how does this text shed light on those instances when we do offend one another? We don't go around nonchalantly trying to offend one another. But when we are offended, someone does, someone does treat us the wrong way, speak to us the wrong way. How do we react when people, they are a little bit selfish, Unfair, abrupt, insensitive. Oh, love believes all things. Love hopes all things, does it not? We put on the mind of Christ. What is really important? What isn't important? And who am I? Who am I as I consider this life I am now living by faith in the Son of God who loved me? and gave himself for me. I think I said it just a few moments ago. I cited it. Here it is again. Oh, love. This kind of love. This kind of understanding. It covers a multitude of sins. It covers a multitude of offenses. A couple more. What does this mean when I'm suffering? What does this mean when trials and tribulations have set in? What does this mean when I am enveloped in a cloud of darkness, no light at the end of the tunnel? You're not even sure you're in a tunnel. What does this text mean? It means that I am living life now with my faith firmly fixed upon the Son of God. And I recognize, oh, we have a hard time with this. 
I have a hard time with this. We recognize that the cross is the way to the crown. We don't like that. We want the crown without the cross. No, 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 brother. It's not the way it works, sister. And the Lord Jesus Christ himself is the proof of it. The cross, the cross, the cross is the way to the crown. But as we take up our cross, and as we follow the Lord Jesus Christ, and as life does present its difficulties, we have this absolute certainty, do we not, that Christ lives in me. That Christ loved me and gave himself for me. And therefore, I am going to tenaciously and stubbornly, in a good sense of the word, hold tight to the Lord Jesus Christ, who has promised he will keep us, he will preserve us, he will guard us, for that salvation ready to be revealed in the last day. And one last question. I had a few more, but this one will do. With this, we will conclude. What does this mean? when I come to die. What does this text mean when I come to die? We'll work through the inferences. If I have been crucified with Christ, and this is what we read in Romans 6, I will also be what? Raised with Christ. He's the first fruits. He's the down payment. He's the pledge of a coming harvest. And I know that having been crucified with him, the penalty for my sin having been paid in full, now clothed in his righteousness, now enjoying and delighting in peace with God, that that day is coming when the trumpet will sound, Christ will descend, and with the shout of the archangel, the tombs will be opened, and Christ himself will gather together the scattered molecules of my body, and he will renew my body and soul in his own likeness. And there I will live forevermore, gazing upon the inexplicable beauty of the one who loved me and gave himself up for me. Our Heavenly Father, may your word come alive to us this day according to the need of each one. For the discouraged, may you bring encouragement. For the troubled, may you bring comfort. For the grieving, may you bring consolation. For the hard-hearted, oh, may you come like a hammer and break that hard heart. For the wanderer, we pray that you would bring him home, her home. For the unbeliever, may this be the day of salvation. Oh, our Father, commensurate with the needs of each one, we pray that by your Spirit you might speak to us by your Word and that this again might be for our good and for your eternal glory. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.